Chapter 14, Section 2-3 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1 by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 14. The Principate of Gaius, Caligula, 37 to 41 A.D. Section 2 to 3. Extravagance and tyranny of Gaius, his murder. Feeling himself superior to both law and custom, Gaius did not hesitate to parade his degraded tastes before the public, and to prostitute the imperial dignity in a way which would have seemed simply inconceivable to Augustus or Tiberius. He took a keen delight in the sports of the circus and in gladiatorial shows, and is said to have himself sung and danced in public, and even descended into the arena. Knights and senators were compelled to take part in the chariot races. Charioteering became a sort of political institution in this reign, and continued to be so until the latest days of the empire. There were four rival parties, distinguished by colours, the green, blue, red, and white. Gaius favoured the green faction, and built a special place of exercise for it. But the gladiatorial shows were the special delight of the emperor. He removed the limitations which Augustus had set on the number of gladiators, and the amphitheatre of Taurus and the sceptre in the Campus Martius were constantly filled with the rabble and the court witnessing not only pairs of gladiators, but the battles of armed bands. Nobles and knights were forced to fight, as well as slaves, for all his fellow-citizens were his slaves in the eyes of this princeps. Combats with wild beasts were also a frequent amusement. One wonders that the higher classes tolerated this juvenile tyranny and such shameless degradation of the imperial dignity, but they seem to have felt it as a change for the better after the parsimony and austerity of the preceding reign, and they saw that the new fashion of things was popular with the rabble. Gaius is said to have lived in incestuous connection with his three sisters. And though this charge is uncertain in regard to Agrippina and Julia, there can be no doubt about Drusilla, of whom he was very fond. He had separated her from her husband, and lived openly with her, after the manner of the Ptolemies and other Oriental potentates. When she died, July 38 AD, he was inconsolable. The Senate decreed her the honours of Livia, her statues were placed in the Curia and in the Temple of Venus, and she was deified under the title of Panthea. All the cities of the empire were commanded to worship her. During his principate, Gaius was married three times, and in all cases, to married women whom he snatched from their husbands. The first, Oristilla, wife of Cian Piso, was soon repudiated for the sake of Lollia Paulina, the wife of Memmius Regulus the same who had assisted in the arrest of Sejanus. She was a very rich lady, and her wealth was probably her chief attraction for the emperor. She was then divorced on the ground of barrenness, and was succeeded by Melonia Caesonia, to whom, though she was a woman of plain features, the emperor seems to have been really attached. As time went on and Gaius found no resistance offered to his sovereign will, as he saw the world at his feet and men of all classes content to be his slaves, he was seized with the idea of his own godhead, and exacted divine worship. 
the oriental notions which he learned from agrippa and the deification of julius and augustus suggested to him this extravagance he believed that nothing was impossible for him to execute and his great passion was to make it manifest that he was controlled by no law and not subject to ordinary human affections he exulted in looking on suffering without blenching he regretted that his reign was not marked by some striking disaster such as the defeat of the varian legions he used to dress himself like bacchus or hercules or venus and play the part of these deities in the temples before an admiring crowd he pretended to converse with jupiter in the temple on the capitol and for this purpose in order to have speedier access to his divine kinsman he caused a flying bridge to be thrown across the velabrum reaching from the palatine close to the newly dedicated temple of augustus to the capitoline among the gods as among men he claimed to be preeminent he declared that he was the latian jupiter and he challenged with a homeric verse jupiter capitolinus to combat he endeavoured to manifest his divine nature by architectural constructions of colossal and fantastic designs he connected the imperial palace with the temple of castor in the forum perhaps by a series of corridors supported on a bridge and thus made the temple the vestibule of the palace this construction has disappeared without leaving a trace his most useful work was the aqueduct conveying to rome the waters of the aqua claudia and the anio novus but this he was unable to complete he planned a work which has been often designed but never executed the making of a canal through the isthmus of corinth his most daring construction was the bridge across the gulf of Baiae, thirty nine a d which was clearly not intended to be permanent a soothsayer it said had prophesied that gaius would never become emperor any more than he would drive a chariot across the gulf of Baiae. gaius determined to drive across it attended by a whole army having collected all the ships that were to be found in all the havens far and wide thus impeding the regular course of commerce and causing serious inconvenience he drew them up in a double line from Baulai to Puteoli. On this bridge of ships was placed a great floor of timber, which was covered all over with earth and paved like a high road. A new and unheard-of spectacle was devised to be exhibited on this structure before it was demolished, and the whole shore from Mycenaeum to Puteoli was crowded with spectators. The emperor, dressed in armour which had been worn by Alexander the Great, rode at the head of a band of soldiers, across the bridge and entered puteoli as a conqueror next morning he drove back in a triumphal chariot but dressed as a charioteer of the green party he halted at the centre of the bridge and made a speech a banquet followed which lasted till late in the night and the whole scene was illuminated with torches on the bridge and on the coast intoxication prevailed and many spectators were drowned if he was zealous for his own fame gaius was jealous of the fame of others he caused the statues of the distinguished men of the Republic, which Augustus had set up in the campus, to be broken in pieces. He forbade the last descendant of the Pompeys to bear the name Magnus. He commanded the works of Virgil and Livy to be removed from the libraries, on the ground that Virgil had no genius, and that Livy was careless. He would not permit the image of his own ancestor Agrippa to be placed beside that of Augustus. He even repudiated his grandfather, and gave out that he was the grandson of augustus and julia living in incest like the gods the extravagances of gaius at last plunged him into financial difficulties he exhausted the large treasures accumulated by tiberius and in order to refill his empty purse he began to persecute the nobles and confiscate the property of the rich 
Hitherto he had steadfastly and vehemently denounced all the works of Tiberius, but, pressed by want of gold, he did not hesitate to revive the law of treason and the system of delation in order to plunder his fellow citizens. Appearing in the Senate, he openly praised the policy of his predecessor and announced the revival of the laws of Maestas. The Senate thanked the Emperor for his clemency in permitting them to live and decreed him special honours. Many rich senators were sacrificed to appease the Emperor's cupidity. L. Aeneas Seneca only escaped because his declining age promised that his wealth would soon fall into the imperial coffers without prosecuting him. The nobles exiled in the islands were put to death and their fortunes confiscated, but Gaius ultimately alienated not only the Senate, but the people, by imposing new taxes which affected Italy and Rome, and the soldiers, by rescinding their wills. But before he went so far as to tax the citizens of Rome, 41 AD, he had plundered Gaul. In September 39 AD, he announced that hostilities of the Germans required his presence on the Rhine, and proceeded thither with a retinue of dancers and gladiators. Lentulus Gaetulicus, a son-in-law of Sejanus, had been now for ten years the commander of the legions of the Upper Rhine. Before the death of Tiberius, he had been accused of having relaxed the discipline of the camp in order to win the favour of his soldiers. When he was threatened by disgrace, he boldly defied the emperor to remove him from the governorship of Upper Germany, and Tiberius had left him where he was. Perhaps the purpose of the expedition of Gaius was to assert the imperial authority over this independent legatus, and restore military discipline. It is certain that the barbarians beyond the limes were at this time troublesome, and the victory which Gaius announced to the Senate may have been warranted by a real repulse inflicted on some band of Germans attempting to invade Gaul. At this time a conspiracy was formed, in which Lentulus Gertulicus was implicated, the object of the plot was to slay Gaius and place M. Aemilius Lepidus on the throne. Lepidus had been a favourite of the emperor and a companion of all his pleasures. Gaius had given him in marriage his favourite sister, the unfortunate Drusilla, and had intended to designate him as successor to the empire. The surviving sisters of Gaius, Agrippina and Julia, intrigued with Lepidus and took part in this treasonable plot, which was discovered in October 39 A.D., Gaetulicus and Lepidus were executed, and the two women were banished. Gaius sent a full account of their adultery and treason to the Senate, and asked the fathers to confer no distinctions on his kinfolk for the future. He also sent three swords, destined for his assassination, to be dedicated as votive offerings to Mars Ultar. To fill the place of Gaetulicus, he appointed Lucius Galba, afterwards emperor, who enforced and restored discipline among the demoralized legions. The emperor spent the winter at Lugdunum, where he practised every device for extorting money from the inhabitants of Gaul. Prosecutions and executions were the order of the day. Auctions were held, at which the people were forced to buy at extravagant prices. It is said that furniture of the imperial palace was conveyed from Rome to the banks of the Rhone, and that the emperor himself played the auctioneer, recommending each article and encouraging the bidding. This was my father's, he said, this my great-grandfather's, this was a trophy of Augustus, this an Egyptian rarity of Antony. By such means the imperial coffers were enriched. Lugdunum also witnessed the great-grandson of Augustus mocking the celebration of the ceremony at his altar, which represented the union of the Gallic provinces. Among the contests which were instituted in his honour were competitions in rhetoric and verse. 
Gaius compelled the unsuccessful candidates to wipe out what they had written with their tongues, under penalty of being cast into the river. On January 1, 40 AD, he assumed the consulship for the third time, but resigned it on the twelfth day. As his destined colleague had died before the end of the year, and the Senate was afraid to nominate anyone in his place without the imperial sanction, the emperor was sole consul during the short period of his office. In spring, he advanced northward from Lugdunum to the shores of the ocean, in order to achieve the work which his greater namesake had attempted, the conquest of Britain. This project was suggested to him by Adminius, a fugitive prince of that island, who had sought refuge with the Romans. The large army which Gaius had connected reached the Bononia, the northern Bononia is now Boulogne, as the southern Bononia is Bologna, of the north, otherwise called Gessoriacum, expecting to take ship there. But one day they were ordered to form in line along the shore, in full battle array, and Gaius, who reviewed his troops from a trireme, suddenly issued a command to pile arms and pick shells. The soldiers filled their helmets with the shells which were regarded as spoils of the sea, and sent to Rome in token of the great victory won by the emperor over the ocean and the island of the ocean. It is quite conceivable that this extraordinary caricature of a British expedition was actually enacted by the eccentric emperor, but it is also possible that the story may be a fictitious parody of a genuine expedition which came to nothing. Before he returned to Rome in order to celebrate there with unheard-of magnificence a triumph for his warlike exploits, Gaius visited Castra Vetera and Oppidum Ubiorum on the Lower Rhine, and report said that he conceived the monstrous idea of decimating those troops who, twenty-five years ago, had by their mutiny caused the flight of his mother Agrippina when he was an infant in her arms. The tale probably rests on some jest which the emperor let fall, in his bantering manner, and which was taken up as serious. His entry into Rome, August 31, 40 AD, took the form of an ovation, not a triumph as he proposed. For the Senate, uncertain what his real wishes were, had not ventured to decree him a triumph until the last moment, and Gaius, filled with resentment, refused their tardy offer. I am coming, he said, but not for the Senate. I am coming for the knights and people, who alone deserve my presence. For the Senate, I will be neither prince nor citizen, but an imperator and a conqueror. From the moment of his return the emperor threw off all the remaining disguises which cloaked the monarchy, and all the fictions of liberty. He appeared in the undisguised character of an eastern autocrat. Instead of entering Rome as a citizen, he entered in the garb of an imperator, and it is said that he would have assumed the diadem if he had not thought himself superior to the kings of the east who wore it. The cruelties and excesses of the new tyranny, which exceeded what had been hitherto experienced, necessarily led to conspiracies. A plot, in which Anicius Curialis, who will meet us again in a subsequent principate, took part, was detected, and the Senate decreed that the Emperor should occupy a seat in the Curia, elevated so high that no conspirator could reach him. Fear of his life made Gaius doubly cruel, and yet the nobles, instead of striking a blow for their freedom, tried to save themselves by civility to the worthless favourites and delators. Such was the freedman Protogenes, who carried about with him two tablets, called sword and dagger, on which the names were inscribed of those who were marked out for death by execution or assassination. To what a pass the spirit of the Senate had descended is illustrated by the fate of Scribonius Proculus. One day, when Protogenes entered the Curia, and the senators pressed forward to shake hands with him, 
he cried to Proculus, who was among them, What, darest thou, the enemy of Caesar, to salute me? The word was hardly spoken when the fathers fell upon their brother senator, and stabbed him to death with their styles. From such men the tyrant thought he had little to fear. Financial difficulties drove the emperor at length into imposing a number of new taxes on Italy and Rome, and these measures deprived him of any vestige of popularity that he still enjoyed with the populace on account of the shows with which he amused them. In January 41 AD, he imposed a tax on imports at the Italian harbours and at the gates of the Italian cities, including Rome. He ordained a fee of two and a half percent for persons suing in the courts of law. He established an income tax which was levied even on prostitutes. He seems also to have resorted to the device of debasing the currency. A feeling of hostility grew up between the people and their ruler, and it is said that Gaius, disgusted at the symptoms of his unpopularity, expressed the wish, Would that the Roman people had only one neck! But from these new imposts men had not long to suffer. A conspiracy was formed among the Praetorian officers, in which Cassius Caria, who owed a personal grudge to the emperor, and Sabinus, both tribunes of the Praetorian guards, took the most active part. L. Annius Vinicianus and some of the imperial freedmen were also implicated. The blow was struck on the 24th of January, 41 AD, just as Gaius was making preparations for a campaign of extortion in the rich province of Egypt. The assassination was accomplished by Chorea and his fellows in the vaulted corridor which connected the palace with the Circus Maximus, through which Gaius was passing to see the horse races. The conspirators succeeded in escaping from the swords of the German bodyguards, and the corpse of Gaius was hastily interred in the Lamian gardens. At a later period it was exhumed and cremated by the sisters whom he had banished. At his death Gaius was only thirty years old. Section 3. Provincial Government, the Jews If the principate of Gaius was a reaction on that of Tiberius in domestic policy, so too in provincial affairs he aimed at altering the arrangements of his predecessor. Tiberius had deposed Antiochus of Comagene and made that district a province. Gaius restored it to the deposed king's son, Antiochus IV. Epiphanes Magnus increased it by the Cilician coast and restored one hundred million sesterces, the confiscated property of his father. Agrippa, whom Tiberius had imprisoned, received the tetrarchy of his uncle, Philip II, who had recently died, and in addition Abilene. Two years later he induced the emperor to depose Antipas and his wife Herodias, the rulers of Samaria, and send them into exile on the ground of treason. Samaria was given to Agrippa, who thus united under his sceptre the lands which had formed the kingdom of Herod the Great, with the exception of the province Judea. In Thrace a Roman officer had governed the inheritance of Cotis since 19 AD. Gaius restored it to Romatalces, son of Cotis, and increased the realm by the rest of Thrace, which had belonged to another Romatalces, the son of Vascuporis. The younger brothers of the restored Romatalces had been brought up with Gaius himself in Italy, and were related through their mother Antonia Trephania with his own grandmother Antonia. He therefore provided them also with kingdoms. To Polemo he gave Pontus Polemoniacus, and to Cotis Lesser Armenia. Another appointment made by Gaius at the same time, 38 AD, was that of the Arabian Scamus to the throne of Iturea. But while he restored dependent kingdoms in the east, he pulled down a dependent kingdom in the west. Ptolemy, 
king of Mauritania, was summoned to Rome and executed, in order that his treasures might replenish the emperor's coffers. It was contemplated to divide Mauritania into two provinces, Caesariensis and Tingitana, and this arrangement was afterwards carried out. Gaius also made an administrative change in the neighbouring provinces of Africa and Numidia. Africa was the only senatorial province in which a legion was stationed under the command of the governor. Gaius removed this anomaly by consigning the legion to an imperial legatus, who was also entrusted with civil functions in Numidia, while the powers of the proconsul were confined to the administration of civil affairs in Africa Vetus. The claim of the emperor to receive adoration as a god led to disturbances among the Jews, both in Judea and at Alexandria. In 38 BC, Herod Agrippa visited Alexandria on the way to his new kingdom. His appearance in the streets, in royal state, led to an anti-Jewish demonstration among the non-Jewish population, and the prefect of Egypt, Abilius Flaccus, with a zeal which proved unlucky for himself, seized the opportunity to require that the Jews, whom they detested, should set up statues of the emperor in their synagogues. When the Jews refused to submit to such an abomination, their fellow citizens drove them into one quarter of the town, and destroyed their dwellings throughout the rest. Many of them were slain in the tumult. But Flaccus, who had also issued an edict forbidding the Jews to keep the Sabbath, paid the penalty of his wrongdoing. He was immediately superseded, and sent as a prisoner to Rome by Bassus, who succeeded him. The Jews, however, had only a short respite. When Gaius began to claim divine worship from all his subjects, he would not brook the solitary refusal of the Jews. It was expected that a decree would go forth, ordaining that the imperial image should be set up in all synagogues, and with a view to avert, if possible, such a calamity. The Jews of Alexandria sent an embassy to appeal directly to the emperor, 40 AD. The details of this embassy have come down to us from the pen of the most distinguished of the ambassadors, the learned philosopher Philo. At the same time, the Alexandrians sent a counter-embassy to thwart the Jews. When they arrived on the coast of Campania, the tidings met them that orders had just been issued to Petronius, the governor of Judea, to set up a colossal statue of the emperor in the Holy of Holies at Jerusalem. Gaius was at this time engaged in transforming the house and gardens of the Lamias into a royal residence, and the rival embassies from Alexandria were summoned thither. They found him hurrying about from room to room, surrounded by architects and workmen, to whom he was giving directions, and they were compelled to follow in his train. Stopping to address the Jews, he asked, Are you the God-haters who deny my divinity, which all the world acknowledges? The Alexandrian envoys hastened to put in their word. Lord and Master, these Jews alone have refused to sacrifice for your safety. Nay, Lord Gaius, said the Jews, it is a slander. We sacrificed for you not once but thrice first when you assumed the empire, then when you recovered from your sickness, and again for your success against the Germans. Yes, observed Gaius, you sacrificed for me, not to me. And thereupon he hurried to another room, the Jews trembling and their rivals jeering, as in a play. The next remark he addressed to them was, Pray, why do you not eat pork? Finally he dismissed them with the observation, Men who deem me no god are, after all, more unlucky than guilty. The embassy of Philo and his fellows was a failure. Gaius was resolved to impose his worship on the Jews, and his orders to Petronius were confirmed. 
the rebellion of Judea seemed inevitable when the death of the mad tyrant averted the sacrilege from the temple of Jerusalem. End of chapter 14, sections 2 and 3